In February 2020, EFCA pastors and church leaders gathered at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois, for the annual theology conference. The focus was on the theme, Contending for the Faith, Seven Critical Contemporary Doctrinal Challenges, A Biblical, Theological, and Pastoral Response. On this episode of the podcast, we share Greg Allison's message on the topic, The Doctrine of Humanity, Imago Dei, Embodiment, Identity, and Human Sexuality. Greg serves as Professor of Christian Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a pastor of Sojourn Church East, Louisville, Kentucky. I'm thankful for the invitation uh, to be here. I do have my MDiv and PhD from TEDS. Uh, five years working on uh, my PhD. I wrote my dissertation on the clarity of Scripture, so I was encouraged to hear Dr. Cole tell us a little bit about that. So I worked under people like uh, Wayne Grudem, John Feinberg, Doug Moo, Grant Osborne. Those are names I'm sure you're familiar with. So uh, my dissertation was lengthy. It was 600 pages. Uh, after I graduated, they wrote an Allison rule. <laughs> Dissertations can't be more than 350 pages. As I mentor PhD students and I mentor their dissertations, I say, I want 200 pages, that's it. <laughs> so I'm thankful to be back on campus and I'm glad to speak to you on the doctrine of humanity, Imago Dei, embodiment, identity, and human sexuality. By way of introduction, I want you to pair up in little groups of two or three, and I want you to interact with this statement. I am my body. I am my body. Do you agree or disagree, and why? Take about two minutes with somebody near you. One more minute, one more minute.
Okay? Okay? Thanks for your enthusiastic discussion. We'll come back to this later on in the talk. The flow of my talk is going to be, a first point will be a review, and then a second point, I'm going to focus on embodiment, and then third point, we're going to talk about sociality, sexuality, identity, and things like that. So let's begin, point number one, with a review. The image of God and human nature. The doctrine of humanity, or theological anthropology, generally covers two important areas human beings in the image of God and the constitution of human nature. Two general important areas. Let's start with the first, point A, human beings in the image of God. God created human beings in his image, making them of all created things the most like him. And he endowed them with dignity and significance. The church has various understandings of what it means to be made in the image of God. There are four primary ones. Substantive views consider the image of God to be some characteristic of human beings some attribute or characteristic such as rationality or free will or moral consciousness, substantive views. Relational views, the image of God is the experience of community that men and women enjoy among themselves and derivatively that human beings and God enjoy. Relational views. Functional views. The image of God is some human activity, some function, particularly the exercise of dominion over the creation. Functional views. Holistic views maintain that these first three views are reductionistic. The image of God, rather, is people themselves in their totality of their being, their relationships, and their activities. Human beings as individuals and humanity as a whole are created in the image of God. Four views held by the church. Of course, Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. And it is into his image that we Christians are being progressively renewed. This renovation, this renewal, of course, is never completed in this lifetime. So full restoration is a future blessing it is a future reality to which we look. That is point A, human beings in the image of God. In terms of B, 1B, let's look at the constitution of human nature. The nature of human beings consists of a material aspect, 
the body, and an immaterial aspect, the soul, the spirit, or the soul and spirit. A material aspect, an immaterial aspect united into one person. This view is some form of dualism. That is, human nature is complex. It consists of two elements, a material element and an immaterial element. On this last point, there are two major views of the complexity of human nature, trichotomy and dichotomy. Trichotomy, the human constitution consists of tri or three elements, body, soul, and spirit. Dichotomy, human constitution consists of di, two elements, body and soul, or body and spirit. Both views, being dualistic, are opposed to monism, the belief that human nature is simple, composed of only one element, and in our day that one element is material. Embodiment is expressed in three stages. During this earthly existence, the material and immaterial aspects are inseparably united. At and after death, the material element, the body, is sloughed off, while the immaterial person continues to exist. At the resurrection, the two aspects are rejoined, and the person exists forever as a material immaterial unity. This is a brief review. Some of you have not been in courses or studied this for decades, so just a brief review of what I think you've covered decades ago. Some new material, point number two, embodiment. I'm going to focus on, for a time, this notion of embodiment with uh, two definitions, a two definitions. The first sense, the first definition, embodiment is simply having or being in a body. In the first definition of embodiment, it's simply having or being in, my in a body. Hence the opening exercise, I am my body. My thesis is that embodiment is the proper state of human existence. This is my thesis. Embodiment is the proper state of human existence. By divine design, human beings are material, physical, embodied. The second sense, the second definition of embodiment, embodiment is a field of study that explores how people are present bodily and engage physically in the world. 
how people are present bodily and engaged physically in the world. It's an area, it's a burgeoning area within academic circles, this field of study called embodiment. What I'm going to offer are some initial elements of a theology of human embodiment. What I'm going to offer are some initial elements of a theology of human embodiment. To be the contemporary problem, body image. We are troubled by our body. We are troubled by our body because we find our value and worth in accordance with cultural expectations of physical appearance. Men are to be chiseled with steel-like abs, tall, dark, and handsome, young, <laughs> muscular, well-endowed with thick hair. For some of you, bald is beautiful. <laughs> Women are to be shaped according to a certain ratio between breasts, hips, waist, and legs. They are to be beautiful, young, fit, and have a glowing face. The disconnect between our society's expectations for our outward appearance and our actual physical self creates a problem for our body image. And to say the least, an inordinately high percentage, we're talking upwards of 95%, an inordinately high percentage of people today suffer from that problem of body image. See, an old problem in a new guise. Now, body image is a relatively recent phenomenon that wreaks havoc with our embodiment. Another struggle with our physicality comes from a worldview that has been around for a very long time. Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which has its roots in ancient pre-Christian philosophy, is the perspective that spiritual or immaterial realities are inherently good, spiritual immaterial realities are inherently good, while physical or material realities are inherently evil. Physical material realities are inherently evil. Sadly, Gnosticism continues to infect us today and leads to a disregard for our body. Some people reason that because our body is inherently evil and because our body is going to stop functioning and be sloughed off at death, we should give no attention to it whatsoever now. Our body doesn't matter. So any concern for it is a complete waste of time. Neo-Gnosticism, 
continues this early heresy in new forms today. It continues to infect the church, leading to disregard for, distancing oneself from, and disparagement of the body. Because of neo-Gnosticism, some people view the body in instrumentalist terms, not dismissing it as inherently evil, but diminishing its importance. They may even consider the body as good, but it's not as good as the soul. So they spend their, times, their time pursuing spiritual disciplines while viewing physical disciplines as only serving an instrumentalist purpose to keep the body functioning well so that they can engage in more important matters of spiritual growth, which, of course, is unrelated to the body. Other people imagine that human embodiment is a mistake. For example, our beloved C.S. Lewis quipped, the fact that we have bodies is the oldest joke there is. Though I won't take time to develop the fact, the church, in accordance with scripture, has always denounced and continues to denounce the heretical worldview that material reality is inherently evil. Indeed, and here's my thesis again, human embodiment, life in a physical, material body, human embodiment is the proper state of human existence. Let's warrant this biblically, point D, biblical affirmations in support of this thesis. In one sense, scripture assumes from beginning to end that human existence is properly an embodied existence. It specifically addresses this matter in its opening chapter, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This act of creating embodied human beings is preceded by a divine deliberation. Verse 26. The Father, the Son... And the Holy Spirit purpose to create a being that is more like God than any other creature. God plans to create human beings in his image according to his likeness and to give them 
certain responsibilities. Then he actualizes his plan. Verse 27, God creates human beings in his image with a crucial qualification. His image bearers are either male or female. That is, God creates men in his image and God creates women in his image. Finally, to these image bearers, God announces a blessing and a mandate. Verse 28, these divinely created male and female image bearers are to reproduce other image bearers and are to produce an ordered society. That is, in accordance with the divine deliberation to create human beings as divine image bearers who have a specific purpose and responsibility, God creates such image bearers with that purpose and for that responsibility. Human beings as divine image bearers are embodied beings by divine design. Divine image bearers are embodied beings by divine design. How about a few theological reflections? 2E, theological reflections. On the basis of these biblical affirmations, an important theological reflection first is that embodiment is an essential feature of God's creation of us as human beings. It should be recalled that another realm of created beings is immaterial. Angels do not have bodies or any other material element. While they may appear in human form, these are exceptions to the normal existence of angels as spiritual or immaterial beings. But we human beings are material. We are embodied beings by divine design. What about the intermediate state? The period of existence between our death and the return of Jesus Christ with its accompanying event of our bodily resurrection. In this state, believers are disembodied. True, we are full of joy. We worship God as we see him face to face. We enjoy rest from our earthly labors and troubles. Still, we exist without a body, which has been sloughed off, put in a grave, buried at sea, cremated, and we become separated from our body. Doesn't this disembodied existence contradict my thesis that the proper state of human existence is embodiment? Actually, this temporary disembodiment provides support for my thesis. This condition, that is disembodiment, this condition is not the way human existence is supposed to be. 
Indeed, as Paul considers the intermediate state, we're talking about 2 Corinthians 5, as Paul considers the intermediate state and its consequence of disembodiment, he shudders in horror. He does not want to be naked. He does not want to be unclothed, that is, without his body. Thus, we should not allow this unusual condition to define what we are as human beings. Rather, embodiment is the proper state of human existence. It is so during our earthly existence, and it will be so for eternity following our re-embodiment as we are resurrected at Christ's return. The temporary state of disembodiment does not indeed cannot contradict our fundamental reality as embodied beings. A second theological reflection, which we don't have time to develop, concerns the purpose of this creation of embodied human beings as divine image bearers. It can be summed up in two interrelated aspects both of which lead to human flourishing. The first aspect is procreation, underscored by the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Genesis 1.28. This responsibility means that the majority of people will be married and that the majority of married couples will have children. The second aspect of human purpose is vocation, highlighted by the mandate to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over the rest of the created order. Again, Genesis 1.28. This responsibility means that able-bodied men and able-bodied women work. At the heart of human life, then, is pro procreation and vocation. Importantly, for our purposes, the divinely given purpose, the so-called cultural mandate, what I call the duty to build human society, this divinely given purpose is accomplished by and only by embodied image bearers. Point F, application. Are you thankful for God's creation of you as an embodied human being? In your groups, two minutes, talk about that question, answer that question. Are you thankful for God's creation of you as an embodied human being? Two minutes, go.
okay? Bring it to a close. Again, I appreciate your enthusiastic discussion of this. Point three. Sex, gender, and identity. Sex, gender, and identity. 3A, my thesis for this part of the talk, a fundamental given, a fundamental given of human existence is maleness or femaleness. A fundamental given of human existence is maleness or femaleness. Indeed, God's design for his embodied image bearers is that we are gendered people. God's design for his embodied image bearers is that we are gendered people. 3B, our contemporary language development. Since the middle of the 20th century, two words, sex and gender, that are important for our discussion have undergone quite a development. Before the 1950s, they were interchangeable words. For example, if you fill out a job form or job application, either term was fine to use. Still today, couples expecting a baby host gender revealed parties, disclosing the biological sex of their fetus. So up until the recent past, sex equals gender. Half of our population was the male sex. The other half of the population was the female sex. Alternatively, half our population was the male gender. The other half of the population was the female gender. Such language convention is now significantly changed. Sex and gender are not synonymous, but refer to two different matters so that sex does not equal gender. Some definitions. Sex refers to the physical, biological, and anatomical dimensions of being male or female, including chromosomes, sexual anatomy, secondary sex characteristics, and so forth. Sex is the assigned biological label on one's birth certificate. Genetically, men are composed of XY chromosomes, and women are composed of XX chromosomes. For clarity's sake, some people use the expression biological sex, or natal male and natal female. Sex is a matter of human DNA and anatomy. Gender, which is now a complex term, can still refer to sex, but more commonly refers to gender expression or gender identity. Generally speaking, gender refers to the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male and female psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male and female. 
more specifically, gender expression is the set of attitudes and behaviors conveyed by people significantly influenced by their society's expectations for, generally speaking, male and female persons. For example, a man may express himself in a more feminine manner by wearing makeup, joining in baking activities while the other Kentucky men go hunting, dressing like a woman, and dangerously using the woman's bathroom. A woman may express herself as a tomboy by roughhousing with the boys, playing football on an all-boys team, and dressing like a boy. Gender identity concerns how people perceive or feel about their sexual identity. Gender identity concerns how people perceive or feel about their sexual identity. The term cisgender refers to people whose sex and gender identity match. Cisgender refers to people whose sex and gender identity match. A biological male identifies as a man and a natal female identifies as a woman. The term gender dysphoria or now in common parlance, gender incongruence, refers to people whose sex and gender identity do not correspond. Gender dysphoria, gender incongruence, I'll use those terms synonymously, refers to people whose sex and gender identity do not correspond. A person whose sex assigned at birth is male does not perceive himself as a male but feels like a woman. A person who is a female, according to her birth certificate, does not perceive herself as a woman, but feels like a man. Such gender confusion may lead to transgenderism, including in the case of prepubescent adolescents, the use of puberty blockers, hormone treatment, and sex reassignment surgery. This is our contemporary condition. What does scripture affirm about this? Point D, let's look at some biblical affirmations. As we've already seen, the opening chapter of the Bible presents God's creation of human beings in his image. This narrative of human creation underscores the divine deliberation concerning and the divine actualization of image bearers who are either male or female, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. This point is confirmed in the subsequent narrative of God's creation of the first man and the first woman, Genesis 2, 7 and verses 8 to 25. As for Adam's creation, Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Having constructed Adam's physical framework 
from the dust of the ground, Martin Luther calls it a lump of clay, God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Some people understand this action to refer to the impartation of the soul or the immaterial aspect of human nature. As I prefer, this divine breathing is the conveyance of the spark of life, the actualizing or energizing principle that courses through all living beings. Genesis 1.30 and 7.22. Adam is an embodied human being made alive by God himself. This creation of the first man is followed by the formation of the first woman. To achieve the divine design for male image bearers and female image bearers, Genesis 1.27, and to deal with the emptiness of Adam, whose aloneness is not good, Genesis 2.18, God himself undertakes the completion of human creation. Verses 21 to 22, Genesis 2, 21 to 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken out of the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Out of Adam's physicality, God forms Eve's, Eve as an embodied woman. The originators of the human race from which all of us derive our existence, the originators were designed and created to be embodied beings. Having created Adam as the first embodied man and placed him in the physical Garden of Eden, God forms Eve from Adam's physicality. Thus, she becomes the first embodied woman and joins Adam in the garden. And together, and indispensably, they begin to engage in the cultural mandate involving procreation and vocation for human flourishing. They are able and obligated to carry out this divine mandate to build society because of and only because of their complementary genderedness. Adam and Eve are embodied human beings, and as such, they are fundamentally male and female. This creation of human beings as male and female is not unique or surprising, for it follows the pattern of binary creation that is recounted in Genesis 1 and 2. Just to highlight a few of these, creator and creature, heaven and earth, formless and void, light and darkness, day and night, evening and morning, waters above and waters below, dry land and waters, two great lights, sun and moon, work and rest, two trees of life, of knowledge, 
good and evil. A binary creation pattern. Importantly, the creation of human beings as male or female follows this pattern of binary creation. God created man as male and female. This common design underscores the fundamental genderness of human beings. There is and only is maleness and femaleness. There is no such thing as an ah-gendered human being. Moreover, given the divine assessment of the created order upon its completion, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, Genesis 1.31, gendered embodiment is beautiful and gestures beyond itself, prompting belief in the goodness of God, its creator. Theological reflections, point E. Wonderfully, then, human beings are male and female embodied beings. We're gendered all the way down. As confirmation, recent research has found that 6,500 genes, 6,500 genes out of approximately 20,000, 6,500 genes are expressed differently in men and women signifying that gendered embodiment is crucial to the identity of human beings as men and women. Gender is the most fundamental particularity of human embodied existence. The most fundamental particularity of human embodied existence is our gender. This point means that I experience myself as an embodied male. I relate to others as an embodied male. And as an embodied male, I know and relate to God. Similarly, my wife Nora experiences herself as an embodied woman. She relates to others as an embodied woman. And as an embodied woman, she relates to God. Try as I might, at her prompting, I cannot experience life from my wife's perspective. <laughs> I cannot experience life from a female point of view. And the same goes for her in relationship to me. We are perspectively gendered, embodied human beings. We view, we experience all of life through either male or female eyes. While this perspective may sound like gender essentialism, that men and women are of distinctly different natures, it's not. Or it is certainly a significantly modified notion. Because this perspective maintains there are no particular properties, obviously outside of reproductive capabilities, there are no particular properties outside of reproductive capabilities that belong exclusively to women or that belong exclusively to men. I'm not talking about roles. I'm not talking about roles. 
There are no particular properties that belong exclusively to women or that belong exclusively to men. There are instead common human properties. Common human properties that are indeed given gendered embodiment must be expressed by women in ways that are fitting to women and that are expressed by men in ways that are fitting to men. To illustrate this modification, human properties such as gender, such as gentleness, courage, initiative, nurturing, patience, and protectiveness are not gender specific. Rather, they are common human properties. Some would be Christian virtues. Some would be the fruit of the Holy Spirit. These are common human properties that are and indeed must be expressed by women and men that reflect their femaleness and maleness. To illustrate, when one considers the quality or virtue of self-sacrifice, one should not think primarily in terms of husbands in relation to their wives. In this case, self-sacrifice in loving their wives is a biblical injunction associated with a marital role. And I'm not talking about roles. Nor should one think primarily in terms of wives in relation to their husbands. In this case, self-sacrifice in submitting to their husband is a biblical injunction associated with the marital role. And I'm not talking about roles. Rather, one should think in terms of siblings in Christ, all of whom are called to self-sacrifice on behalf of one another. 1 John 3, 16. We should think in terms of brothers and sisters in Christ who are all called to self-sacrifice. Accordingly, people mistakenly speak of the masculine attributes of God and the feminine attributes of God. We will avoid getting sidetracked by the fact that God is agendered. Indeed, God cannot be male or female because gender maps onto embodiment and God is not embodied. Taking it a step further, People mistakenly speak of the masculine and feminine attributes of Jesus. With examples of the latter, examples of the feminine attributes of Jesus include Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, healing the sick, showing compassion to the Syrophoenician woman, weeping over dead Lazarus, and gently treating children. According to my perspective, Servanthood, a healing touch, compassion, lamentation, and gentleness are not properties that pertain exclusively to women or to men. Rather, they concern all human beings. To repeat, there are no particular properties that belong exclusively to women or that belong exclusively to men. There are instead common human properties that are, indeed must be, expressed in gendered ways. Please note, I've said nothing about roles and authority. There are hundreds of books. 
there are thousands of articles and blog posts about the roles of men and women. But this perspective emphasizes the essence of human gender, not gender role and gender authority structures. It is certainly possible to affirm a difference in roles and authority structures for men and women in the home and in the church. Indeed, one may even affirm a traditional view of role differences and still embrace this perspective about gender. Additionally, the fact that we are gendered in the totality of our perspective is a key reason why we desperately need one another. Men need women, and women need men, and not just in terms of marriage. We need one another to be transported beyond our own limited viewpoint to as, so as to experience life in a multifaceted way. Moreover, creation as male image bears and female image bears is indispensable for us to, to carry out our divinely mandated uh, duty to build society. And this necessity is not just for the procreation part. The vocational aspect also requires both men and women to work and contribute to human flourishing. In summary, a fundamental given of human existence is maleness or femaleness. Indeed, God's design for his embodied image bearers is that we are gendered people. Application? Are you thankful for the gender that God created you? You got the rhythm now. Two minutes. Discuss with your, in your small group. Are you thankful for the gender that God created you? Okay? Last point, four. How gendered embodiment addresses two contemporary moral and social issues. First, gender dysphoria and transgenderism, and second, sociality and sexuality. Start, start point 4A, gender dysphoria or gender incongruence and transgenderism. 
This perspective that I shared with you on embodied genderness has important implications for the looming and disconcerting contemporary problem of detaching maleness and femaleness from biological sex, XX or XY, or the notion that sex is that which is assigned at birth. In place of the givenness of sex, now there is genderness. One's self-identification is either male or female, regardless of one's gender identity. This biblical theological perspective also addresses unigenderism in, and all other forms of non-binary genderedness. For example, Facebook has 75 gender categories. The disconnect between gender, sex, and the disconnect between sex and gender results in gender dysphoria or incongruence. Again, I'll use both terms. In terms of definition, it is the tension a person feels when their gender experience, their gender identity, does not correspond to their biological sex. Such conflict may express itself in various ways, from cross-dressing to sex reassignment surgery. The surgery is the hormonal and surgical transformation of a biological woman into a man. For example, Charity Bono, daughter of Sonny and Cher, became Chaz Bono. Alternatively, the transformation is from a biological man into a woman. An example is Bruce Jenner, Olympic decathlon champion, who became Caitlyn Jenner. At the heart of gender incongruence leading to transgenderism is a denial of our opening discussion, I am my body. As an example, Jessica Savano transgendered from being a man to being a woman. His failed Kickstarter campaign sought financial backing for a documentary entitled, I Am Not My Body. Clearly, Savano's motto contradicts my first thesis and is rooted in a detachment of maleness and femaleness from biological sex. Gender incongruence must be clearly distinguished from an unusual physical condition that is a matter of genetics. In rare cases, a child is born with an ambiguous gender, and it is not clear whether the child is male or female. One form of this is known as intersex. Ambiguous gender results from a genetic abnormality, and, norm and normally the parents select a gender at birth which then requires corrective surgery, hormone replacement therapy. Whereas intersex is a physical matter, gender dysphoria and transgenderism is a matter of perception or feeling. Some gender incongruence is typical of adolescence. It may be the result of peer pressure to experiment with the latest fad. Some gender confusion may be due to its shock value, it becomes a blatant can, uh, becomes a blatant expression of rebellion against parental, societal, church, and biblical expectations in order to claim the right to define oneself. Typically, and there are many exceptions, gender confusion is experienced by teenage girls who are socially awkward, outliers in their schools, often anxious or depressed, and starve for acceptance and relationships. Once they come out as transgender, they experience much adulation, encouragement, and recognition, especially on social media. 
with the help and guidance of a loving community, of family, friends, teachers, and church, the majority of adolescents will grow out of those feelings. For example, according to the DSM-5, among gender-confused adolescents, 98% of boys and 88% of girls accept their biological sex after puberty. In many cases, the experience of gender dysphoria is real, and the pain and distress it causes should not be underestimated. A diversity of opinions exists for managing such tension, as the spiritual heritage community of the EFCA affirms in its church statement on human sexuality, and I quote, though recognizing that due to sin and human brokenness, our experience of our sex and gender is not always as God the Creator originally designed, our recognition of our sex as male or female as a gift from God dictates that we cannot support or affirm the resolution of tension between a person's biological sex and experience of gender by the adoption of a psychological identity discordant with that person's birth sex, nor support or affirm attempts to change via medical intervention one's given biological birth sex in favor of the identity of the opposite sex or of an indeterminate identity. A superior statement. B, sociality and sexuality. This perspective on human genderness has important implications for sociality and sexuality. Two definitions serve to bring clarity to this discussion. The first is a definition of sociality. Sociality is a universal human condition of being desirous for, expressive of, and receptive toward human relationships. The universal human condition of, in your, on the screen, desiring, expressing, and receiving relationships. We desire to bond with other people, some of whom become our BFFs. We express our sociality by joining with others in community, a church, yoga or CrossFit classes, neighborhood associations, mom's day out. We are receptive of other people's companionship when we hang out with members of our office team after hours, accept our next door neighbor's invitation for dinner and feel good when we've made a new friend. To tie in with gendered perspectivalism as male gendered embodied individuals and female gendered embodied individuals men and women express differently their sociality. To avoid misunderstanding, sociality is personal and relational, not a physical activity. It is not sexiness, it's not seductiveness, it's not eroticism. Rather, it is the human, universal human state of being oriented toward others. Sociality is expressed in the giving and receiving that leads to and characterizes human relationships. The second definition is that of sexuality or sexual activity. As one type of human sociality, sexuality or sexual activity refers to any physical event or movement between people that is intended to arouse erotic desires and sensations. Any physical event or movement between people 
that is intended to arouse erotic desires and sensations for various purposes. Let's go back to sociality. Sociality comes with both a capacity, a design, and a capacity. Go to the next slide. Sociality comes with both a de design and a capacity. The first aspect, design, has just been covered. It is by divine design that all gendered embodied people desire, express, and receive relationships. The second aspect is a human capacity. The capacity to desire, express, and receive relationships in either a positive way or a negative way. As for the positive manner, people engage in relationships with others according to divine design. The bonds they form in the community in which they engage are healthy and life-promoting, characterized by love, care, empathy, and the like. As for the negative manner, people pervert relationships through both unconscious and conscious ways, that is, willful rebellion against the divine order. Biblically and theologically, sociality's divine order expresses itself in the following, way, following ways. In the case of women, in relationship with other women, it expresses itself as friendship apart from same-sex attraction and homosexual activity. In the case of women in relationship to men, the divine order expresses itself as friendship apart from lust and heterosexual activity, with one exception, marriage to a man. Then sexual activity is right. Sociality expresses itself in the case of men in relationship with other men as friendship apart from same-sex attraction and homosexual activity. In the case of men in relationship to women, it expresses itself as friendship apart from lust and heterosexual activity, with one exception for such activity, marriage to a woman. Sociality means that men and women, you and I in the church, can and should be friends, better siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to act according to who we are, 1 Timothy 5, 1-2. Going back to sexuality, and we're nearly done, returning to sexuality or sexual activity, the general biblical framework for sexual activity includes the following elements. As designed by God, sexual activity is to be between a husband and wife who have covenanted together to be in a monogamous, unbreakable relationship. Thus, when it is a heterosexual activity between married couples, sex is divinely approved, it's good, and it's right. The purposes for sexual activity are many. As the Spiritual Heritage Committee of the EFCA affirms in its church statement on human sexuality, all homosexual behavior is specifically condemned as sin in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This includes both male and female homosexual activity, both the more passive and more active roles in homosexual practice, and all varieties of homosexual acts. At the same time, all human beings deserve to be treated with dignity and respect because each of us bears the image of God. 
an LGBT person deserves this dignity and respect no less than any other. And we as Christians should demonstrate this in our thoughts, speech, and behavior. Speech, including humor, which demeans LGBT people, has no place in the Christian community. Likewise, this means we oppose any mistreatment of those who identify as LGBT. We mourn with those who struggle with same-sex attractions and with their families. But as we grieve, we encourage behavior that follows the clear divine teachings of Scripture. Again, an excellent statement by way of application. And we won't get in your groups because we're going to have Q&A. How does this presentation on gender embodiment help you address gender dysphoria and transgenderism and homosexuality, LGBTQIA people, and same-sex attraction? We'll leave that for a discussion at lunch. Thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. Uh, I'm going to ask just a couple of questions, uh, and we've got just a couple of minutes. Um, the first, I, uh, thank you. It was in incredibly helpful. Um, two things. One's going to be stepping outside your lecture uh, and to, to sort of, I mean, it's, 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 it's right on, but to step outside and to, and to look in to, to explain, sort of pull the curtain. The other is then to step back in and to say, so what? So the, the, the question of stepping out is, uh, so what precipitated this shift? When we were growing up, it was, we're about the same age, and, and many others, but they're younger as well. I mean, th th those growing up today, it, they're in the, this is the cultural stream. Well, what, sh what changed from when, you know, the 60s, when maybe that was the, that was the issue? 19 I think you're right. I think it's the 60s. You and know, I, I, so step back and explain. So just oversimplifying everything. We just focus on one thing, and here I think, Pope Benedict XVI recently has expressed this, I think, very well. Um, it goes back to the sexual revolution yeah. in the 1960s when everything changed. Yeah. You and I grew up, yeah. right, in that, and everything changed. Yeah. So there's a, a throwing off of autonomy and tradition, the yeah. church, scripture, yeah. God, any kind of institutions that are authoritative. Yeah. All of that went... And it's basically no holds barred. There are no regulations. There are no rules. God can't speak to this. The Bible yeah. wrongly speaks to it and all like that. I think oversimplifying it goes all the way back to the sexual revolution. And we're just reaping the fruits of that. Yeah. I wonder if Nietzsche's God is dead and then the God of dead theology yeah. has sure. led to the death of man in yeah. the 21st century yeah. here now. Yeah, that's, just, that's good. Yeah. Lots of reasons, yeah. So now step back in. Yeah. Uh, answer your last question. We've got pastors... We've got pastors and leaders out here. Yeah. You serve in that role, and you're training pastors yeah. and leaders. So what is it that, that pastors need to help parents with who are raising children in this? Where this has just become, I mean, it's just, it's, it's the narrative, right? It's the cultural yeah. narrative that's very different from a, the biblical narrative. Yeah. And the biblical narrative is really considered a cultural heretic is what we are. Yeah. So what counsel might you give? Ugh, how many hours do we have? <laughs> So if, if you're working with adolescents, for example, uh, what I've laid, the purpose of laying out what I laid out is to provide a biblical and theological basis. And we have to, that has to be our framework. That does not make the conversations and relationships any easier, right? But it does 
say we have to be grounded here. And, and I quoted these statements from the, the Free Church because it was exceptionally good. We, we never affirm uh, gender dysphoria and transgenderism and homosexual activity and SSA and all like that. We, we never affirm it, but if we're going to focus on the gospel and lead people to Christ, and then as we lead them to Christ, we focus on discipleship and sanctification. We have to, working within this framework, develop discipling, mentoring relationships where we walk people through this. And it's considering, a, 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 someone might say, you know, I'm, I'm same-sex attracted. Or, or may say, I'm coming out now, I think I'm a man, though I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman. And I want you to call me instead of... Uh, Alexandra, I want you to call me Alexandria. And then I want hormone treatment and, and uh, puberty blockers and, same, uh, and, and sex reassignment surgery. So, so we have to look at this. Most people in these camps, right, they, they go through a long process. And we want to walk with them through that process and invite them to read the word and consider the lordship of Jesus Christ. The purpose is the gospel and, and having the gospel transform them. But we have to have a relationship with them. To throw bombs at them from long distance, it's just not going to work. Let, let's just think about, do you, do you use uh, new names and new pronouns? Right? This may be a, a, of, of pressing importance to you. I, I would ask this. Does your conscience formed by scripture, permit you to call what, who was formerly Alexander, Alexandria? Does your conscience, informed by scripture, allow you to use the new name and new pronouns? If it doesn't, then don't. But realize you're probably going to cut off that relationship. It's called dead naming, and you will probably be rejected. But if your conscience does not permit you to do it, don't violate your conscience. You're not free to do it. But if your conscience, informed by Scripture, allows you to do it, right, working within its biblical theological framework, be welcoming of people, walk with them, but never affirm their sin. And I know that's very easy to say. But, and, and this is just the beginning of, of a longer discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.